Well, we're going to talk about the thorn today. Paul's thorn in the flesh. I've heard people say that was their husband. Couldn't have been for Paul. He didn't even have a wife. There is a critical feature in every one of Paul's letters. And to not appreciate it is to miss the essence of the power of the gospel. He always begins every letter with the indicative. What has Christ done for us? And after he firmly establishes that, he goes into the imperative, therefore, how should we live? When most people think of faith or church or maybe religion, they think of only the imperative. Do's and don'ts. And they're right if they're talking about religion. But if they're talking about the gospel, it's not at all about do's and don'ts. It's about what Jesus has done and how that can be applied to every life. So today we're going to talk about discouragement because that's what Paul talks about, but he doesn't give any answer to that that doesn't fully incorporate the gospel. What he would say to us is every problem we face, we have to apply the gospel to it. You say, well, tell me more about that. Let's let Paul tell us. Beginning 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the penultimate chapter in this letter, he says, I must go on boasting. Now, there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Two years ago, one of my heroes died, Brennan Manning. You've heard me talk of him. 
And when he died, all of the tributes began to roll in, including one man who wrote this. His consistent banging the drum of God's unconditional love sounded at a time when many of us had had it up to here with religion and the church and most probably ourselves. We were the tired, poor, self-hating, huddled masses yearning to be free, and along came a patchwork preacher who grinned and said, you already are. Abba loves you. Let's go get some, let's go get some ice cream. His bestseller, Ragamuffin Gospel, was like medicine. Never before in all of my life did I hear God's grace communicated to me in a way that I fully could grasp. In that book, he wrote this, When Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he assumed that we would grow weary. He assumed that we would be discouraged. He assumed that we would be disheartened on our way. You know, if there's one thing about Brendan Manning you knew, you knew that he lived what he preached. Philip Yancey wrote the foreword of his last book, his memoir, All Is Grace. And in it he said, as you read this memoir, you may be tempted, to, as I was, to think, oh, what might have been if Brennan hadn't succumbed to the bottle? But I urge you to reframe that thought. Think, oh, what might have been if Brennan hadn't come to understand grace. Brennan possessed in faith not only an ability to make right decisions on occasion and wrong decisions on occasion, but he was able to respond appropriately to his wrong decisions. And then Philip Yancey ends with a poem written by a famous songwriter and singer, Leonard Cohen. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. And that's the way the light gets in. Ring the bells that can, you can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. And that's the way the light gets in. That's what Paul says. Listen to what he says in verse 7. A thorn, a messenger of Satan, was given to me to harass me. The word harass in Greek literally means to be punched with a fist. What Paul is saying, this thorn continued to pummel me. I love what the Puritans described this word as being. It me- they said it means to take courage, uh, courage out of someone. That's where we get the word discouraged. The opposite of courage is discouragement, and that's what Paul says he has. He's talking about his own discouragement. And he's letting us into a place that most leaders never let their people see. His own discouragement. His own pain. His own struggle. There's an old legend about the devil had a yard sale. He had all of his tools out there. There was 
lust and it had a price tag. There was envy, it had a price tag. There was conceit and pride. And then off to the side, there was an old beat-up battered tool with a price tag on it. And one person going through the yard sale said, hey, devil, what's that? And why is it priced 10 times more than anything else? He said, oh, that's discouragement. That's the tool I use more than any other tool. It's powerful to me for two reasons. I can get into any heart with it, and when I do, they don't even know it's me. Someone has said discouragement is a wonderful barometer of where you're living. If you're never discouraged, it means you don't care. If you are never discouraged, it means you don't care about others, you don't care about God, and you certainly don't care about the world. But if you're always discouraged, it means you don't know how to deal with it. Most don't. You know the good news? Paul tells us in this text exactly how to deal with discouragement. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the setting. Look at verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now you've got to get the scene. In four years, Paul has been to this city twice. He's written three letters to them, and we only have one of them. And every one of the letters is difficult because he's addressing issues that they have. To be a Corinthian in the first century meant that you were considered a miscreant, morally corrupt, fast and loose, ethically shady. Corinth was a a crossroads of cultures, both Roman and Greek. It was the 42nd Street of the ancient world. It was the place where you could get anything. It was Vegas. And if you were from Corinth, you were a Corinthian. And whenever around the world, if you wanted to say somebody's really a slug, you'd say they're a Corinthian. Not only that, it was a place of intense religious experimentation. And there were false teachers all over that city. And many began to coalesce with one message. And the message was this, Paul is a suspect. Paul is a bloviating, arrogant, self-aggrandizing liar. He's preaching a message that's false because we have the real revelation. He's a deceiver. We have the truth. Don't listen to him. Listen to us. We can tell you how to know God and how to follow him. And it's identically opposite. To what he's saying. Remember what Paul says in his first letter to them? I had determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm going to talk about Jesus. But now they're putting him on the horns of a dilemma. He's forced to talk about himself. He doesn't want to talk about himself, but he's got to talk about himself. He doesn't want to. He's not called to do that. Like John the Baptist, he's called to decrease, Christ to increase. But they're challenging his authority. They're challenging his pedigree. They're challenging him on his relationship with God. And so he's forced into a dilemma. Now, most of us aren't forced into that dilemma. We want everybody to know us. 
Did you know that everybody's favorite subject is themselves? You know, amazing to me. You know, somebody dies and I didn't know them and I talk to their family and on the phone or in person and I ask them a bunch of questions. They give me a, a whole bunch of information and then the service happens and they come up to me. Oh, you, it was like you knew her. I want to say, I only know her because you told me all about her. That's how we are about ourselves. We want others to know us. We want us, we want us to know our experience. We want to say, in effect, I'm tired of talking about you. Talk about, let's talk about me. We play, can you top this? But Paul didn't. Listen to what he says in chapter 11. Since many boast in the flesh, I will too. I don't want to. It's not what I'm called to do, but I'll do it. So he's ready to boast. Second, notice the scene. Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Back in 1996, when Bob Dole ran for president, the comedians went crazy on him. You may remember this. He'd always talk about himself in the third person. Bob Dole thinks what Bob Dole will do is what's good for Bob Dole. And comedians went nuts. Like, who talks like that? Alonzo Mourning did it a few years ago. Alonzo Mourning has to care only about Alonzo Mourning when he had a big contract. You know what psychologists call that? A defense mechanism. It's a way of separating yourself from a particular experience or a point of view. But Paul isn't talking about himself in the third person because... He wants to separate himself from the experience. What he wants to do is make sure that his readers are understanding the one who gave him the experience. He wants no praise for this because he had nothing to do with it. I know a man. About that man I'll boast, but not about me. He's the same guy. Have you ever known anybody to have a real intimate experience with God? Have you ever known anyone, have you, have you ever had a time when you felt as though the Lord drew so near to you? In the summer of 1949, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Arguably, or one of the greatest, that's no argument, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. A medical doctor who left medicine, got a doctorate of theology, and he preached at one of the largest churches in all of Great Britain. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in the summer of 1949, grew desperately depressed discouraged. He was burned out. There was nothing anybody could do to help him. He didn't want any help. So you know what he did? He took a leave of absence. He said to his leadership, I've got to go. Where are you going? Not telling. He went out to the country to a little cottage all by himself and there he spent two months now, it's an amazing thing. We know this happened not because he wrote about it 
or because he ever preached about it, but his biographer did a lot of deep research and discovered what happened out there. One morning after several weeks, Lloyd-Jones at 6 a.m. in the morning hadn't slept all night, sitting in a chair, looked over at his bookshelf, and he saw on the spine of a book the word glory. And he said, when I read that word glory, instantly, his biographer said, instantly he entered a state of ecstasy. He experienced an overwhelming sense of God's grace. It lasted for three or four days. It was a manifestation of God that he never had before and he never had since and he never talked about it. You know why? Because it was too holy to talk about. Too intimate. That's what Paul's talking about. I know a man 14 years ago who was caught up into the third heaven. But that's all he tells us. He saw visions and revelation and glory, but that's all he says. You see, when the Lord pulls back the veil and he allows you to see his glory, two things happen. You get shy about you and you get bold about him. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it that no one would think too highly of me. He doesn't want to talk about it. Now, it's interesting. He does talk about his conversion on the road to Damascus. He talks about that. But he won't talk about this experience. It's never anywhere in his writings. Look what he tells us. Nothing. I know a man 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, received revelation, visions, glory, that's all he says. Isaiah gives us more detail than that. I saw the Lord high and lifted up his train filled the temple. That was last week. Paul doesn't tell us anything. He says, I was caught, the man was caught up into the third heaven. What's that mean? Well, every Corinthian, every Greek, every Roman would know. In ancient cosmology, the first heaven was the atmosphere. The second heaven was where the stars and the moon were. But the third heaven was the presence of God, paradise. What he's saying is, 14 years ago, I was lifted up into heaven. In my body, out of the body, I don't know. All I know is, that's where I was. Why? Why was he given that privilege? You know what he says? I know a man in Christ. That's his favorite expression. In Christ. You are in Christ. I know a man in Christ. Why did you have this? I was in Christ. You know, for us that love to talk about ourselves, I know people who will say, God said this to me. God told me. God spoke to me. 
And what I instantly know when they say that is, it probably happened, but it was a lower level experience. Because if it really was a moment of incredible intimacy, they probably won't talk about it. Third, notice the sorrow. Look at verse 7. So, or because of all of this, to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to pummel me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I'd say that thorn did a pretty good job. And for centuries, we've wondered, what is the thorn? Is it a physical ailment like eyesight? Because later in one of his letters, he says, see what large letters I'm writing you. Couldn't he see? Was that it? Some say, no, it wasn't that. It was a besetting sin. He had some sin in his life that he couldn't get away from. That was it. Others say, no, that wasn't it. It was a reminder of all his past life. Every time he preached the gospel, somebody might have been in the audience and they would know the old Paul. He doesn't tell us. Why doesn't he tell us? Because it's not about him. What he tells us about the thorn is it was the result of his experience of heaven. He says, in effect, I was so lifted up that the Lord gave me a thorn of weakness that is with me to this day to keep me from becoming conceited, self-focused. In other words, he gave me something so painful leading to such discouragement that it drove me and continues to drive me to him. You see this? That's what he's saying. This thing, this messenger of Satan drives me to the Lord. And in essence, he says, and don't think that's easy for me to understand because three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Now, does that mean literally three times? Or does that mean three in terms of a whole order of magnitude? I think it means the latter. He begged the Lord, take this away. Lord, if you love me, take it away. See, what Paul's saying is, The thorn came to me. And it had a message. It had a message from Satan. And the message is this. He doesn't love you. You're not really his. If he loved you, you wouldn't be suffering like this. You deserved it. That's exactly what Satan said to Job. You're okay. These friends of yours are crazy. There's nothing in you that's bad. The Lord's being unfair. If he really loved you, he'd take it away. If you were really his, you wouldn't have this problem. We see it in Job. We see it in Elijah. We see it in Sarah. We see it here in the Apostle Paul. But notice what Paul says. There's not just one message that comes. There's another message. 
In Psalm 91, the psalmist is facing a myriad of problems and discouragements. And you know what he says? The Lord is my refuge and my fortress. In Psalm 3, he's facing pain, difficulty, discouragement. He says, the Lord to me is a shield. And here Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord three times to remove this thorn, but he didn't. Instead he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Let me give you another translation. My power is perfectly fitted to your weakness. You see, with every thorn, there's two messages. The reason you're suffering is because you did something wrong. The reason you're suffering is because he doesn't like you. The reason he's, you're suffering is because you're not really his. And then there's the other message that says, I love you. I've chosen not to remove this because this is my gift for you that keeps you focused on me. Do you see this? Discouragement is not the result of the thorn. It's the result of what message you're listening to. If you listen to Satan, you've blown it. God hates you. He's failed you because you failed him. You're too weak. If you were stronger, you'd be able to deal with this. But because you're a weakling, he's deserted you. He gave you so many chances. But then there's always another voice. In the midst of your pain, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. That thorn is not the result of my anger, it's the result of my love. Do you see this? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I came to grow up spiritually. I came to the place where the Lord enabled me to have my ear tuned to his voice rather than the other voice and now I recognize that my pain and my thorn, my weakness is my greatest glory because it drives me to him. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. Christians aren't safe from evil things. They're safe from the evil of all things. Christians aren't safe from evil things, but they're safe from the evil of all things. Satan always wants to discourage us. He also always wants us to be hopeless. He always wants us to think that it's all about us. And the gospel says, no, it isn't. It's all about me, the Lord says. It's not about you. Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'll boast of my weakness. You want to know about me? I'm nothing. And I can prove that every day. But in my weakness, he shines. Isn't that what John Newton is saying in Amazing Grace when he writes, through many dangers, toils, snares, I've already come. His grace hath brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. You see, it's not the thorn that discourages us. It's listening to the voice of Satan that says, you're not his. 
And the Lord says, no, that's not true. Your thorn is proof that I am with you and I love you. You see, Leonard Cohen is right. So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything, and that crack lets the light in. That's true for you. It's true for me. Talk about a great divine exposure. That can change your life. Think about it. Amen.